Hi, my name is Andy Day. I'm the founder and CEO of Capital A, and welcome to MA QA. Today we have Rich Antonello, co founder and CEO of Complex Networks, a global entertainment and youth culture company. Complex started out as a sneakers and hip hop print magazine in 2002, founded by Mark Echo, the urban fashion designer. Since Rich joined Complex in 2003, he's transformed the Complex business, and it's now one of the largest online destinations, if not the largest destination for hip hop culture. The company produces some of the most recognizable content on YouTube. Their Hot One show, created by their first week feast brand, is watched by millions. Literally, each episode is watched by millions of people within hours of dropping. It's even spawned its own hot sauce products. Complex has acquired a number of brands over the years. Pigeons and Planes, Soul Collector and Collider. We'll get into some of those acquisitions a little later, but that's not even their most interesting part of their M&A credentials. Rich has also raised over $35 million in funding for Complex and has been acquired by a joint venture between Hearst and Verizon and has just recently announced that they'll be acquired by BuzzFeed so they can list on the stock market via a SPAC. We've not even scratched the surface yet of the Complex universe, having launched ComplexCon in 2016, which is an amazing mix of media and brands at conference in Los Angeles. They went on to launch during the COVID lockdown Complexland, which is a metaverse event and destination for fashionistas. I don't think I've been this excited about a guest on MA QA, but the complex media journey is one I've watched over the years and always been in awe of the tenacity and constant reinvention of the content output. Rich, welcome. How are you doing? Well, first of all, I, I'm a little bit more excited after your tremendous introduction. It sounds like <laughs> it sounds like we do a lot. Um, yeah. so we're we're rather excited about getting anytime we get a chance to talk about how different we are and how in front of the market we have been consistently for 20 years. We love that opportunity. Great. Well, well first, we're going to kick off with a, a quick background check on you, Rich. So we do this every week with our guests. So tell us a bit about how you got started in your career. Your background is publishing, and also from, you're from the agency world. I am from the agency world. I was a lo- lucky enough to start at Saatchi & Saatchi in 1993 back when they were kind of the largest advertising, global advertising agency in the world at that time. And not only did I get a chance to work on some unbelievable brands, I launched Goldschlager, I worked on Paddington Liquors, but at the same time, I also worked on Procter & Gamble and I worked on their flagship Tide. So uh, to say that basically I got a couple of years of experience, I always say I got my MBA because they pay you so little, it's like you're paying them to work. And... Uh, I got to work with some of the best brands and smartest minds in the world. And that propelled me to really fall in love with brand narrative and storytelling. Not so much the media and the audience side, but the combination of the science and the art, which then led me to wanting to go into publishing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's quite, it's quite a drastic jump, isn't it, from where you were into the publishing. So I'd really like to get stuck into that transition of how you went into... Sorry? Especially paycheck-wise. <laughs> well, it went up or it went down? Oh, it went significantly up, but yes. Okay, so yeah, let's get stuck into that, that transition. So you're, you're the agency guy, you work with all of these brands, and then you, you're suddenly in the lead role, it seems, at Complex. What was the deal here? What was the conversation that you had with Mark Echo about you joining so, Complex as CEO? Well, Echo Unlimited was run by Mark his twin sister, Marcy, and this guy, Seth Gersberg. 
And I was at National Geographic and I had just launched, finished launching Adventure Magazine for them very successfully. And I ran into Echo's VP of marketing, this guy, Rob Weinstein, who was like, you have to meet Mark and Seth. And uh, I met Mark and Seth. We ended up having a screaming match for about three and a half hours about everything they did wrong with the first couple of issues, but how smart the idea of the concentric circles of subcultures moving to the middle. And nobody had ever really kind of taken what their concept was, but really solidified it and been like, okay, here's how you operationalize that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, after some of those hours, we decided that it would be a very good idea if we worked together. So uh, came on and we radically changed everything that they were doing because look, these were fashion guys who didn't understand the publishing industry. And to say that the publishing industry is a both complicated and very insular type of situation, that is the understatement of the world, especially back then. And the bottom line is, is we had such an opportunity because really nobody was, let's talk about the qualitative side for a second. Really nobody, everybody was still either super small niche verticalized topics or large-scale ubiquitous topic, like just everybody. And from my viewpoint was, is we could aggregate a whole bunch of these verticalized voices that are all tied together by hip-hop as a culture. Sneakers, design, art, shopping, and the music, of course. And if you, if you tied all those together, you could have the scale of the large-scale companies, but the authenticity and credibility of the small verticalized. And all of those topics also disproportionately were moving from the periphery to the middle where they influenced all of youth culture. So we were just well ahead of the curve and we just needed to put that together and package it correctly to the brands and the advertisers, as well as grow the verticalized conversations to the communities and audience that is out there. So obviously you got a lot of those ideas while you were working in advertising, but how did you make that jump to Nat Geo even and then get those, those learnings from putting a print magazine out for, for Nat Geo and then moving on to Complex? Well, I was very lucky for teams that when I was at Winter Media working at Rolling Stone Men's Journal, I had bosses that let me probably take on responsibilities that were five or 10 years ahead of the curve, you know, lead some very creative brand first opportunities rather than audience buys, liaison a great deal with the editorial teams. So, you know, in the, in the mid to late 90s, there weren't a whole lot of salespeople that had opportunities to have a lot of exposure to the editorial side. Mm. I was lucky enough to do that, A, because I understood and cared about the editorial product, not just the audience numbers, but I had bosses that encouraged that as an opportunity and allowed me to really grow and probably get experience that, like I said, is five or 10 years ahead of where uh, most people were at that time which enabled me to be in a situation where at 30 years old, I was ready to run all of Complex from, a, from both sides of the, of the product. Right. So usually that's divided by what they call the Chinese wall, isn't it? So you were able to reach through to editorial, probably because hey, you're a New Yorker. Or you just said that you were really over-opinionated before we went live. So how did that happen? Because that's supposed to never happen. Well, I mean, look, at the end of the day, my viewpoint is if you don't start, and I don't care how big your product is, I don't care how big your ad business is, if, especially, and this is very true today, but if you don't start with the community and the audience and that massive respect, 
I always, and, and look, I'm very opinionated, but I, the reason I got along with the editorial teams is I wasn't trying to get them to do things to make the audience larger. I was trying to get them to understand how important the audience was and how that depth of connection was everything. My viewpoint is, is the deeper the connection from the content that is being developed, irrespective of format, and the community is, and the audience is, is the more layers of revenue you can put on. It's a very simple concept. It's just, I've always believed in community. It's a very hot thing to talk about now. I've been talking about that for 25 years, though. That's been my pitch from day one. And my viewpoint is content, the, the better and the more balanced the content is, like complex is the prism, but we can take all of the verticalized topics of no matter how hardcore sneakers, art, design, music is, and make it relevant to the masses, or the prism works the other way. We can take a very mass topic and make it very verticalized through our lens. And to me, the greatest brands in the world, not just businesses, but brands, have that incre incredible deep connection. You could layer multiple revenue streams on, and it's a value exchange from the community to the brand, which creates and begets the best business possible. Right. It's a very but, simple formula. But, but Rich, this sounds like today, Rich, talking. What was 2006 Rich I'll, talking about? I'll be frank. I, I swear to <laughs> God, like, I'm not joking. Like, here's, here's a perfect case example is I got there at the end of 02, beginning of 03, and we broke even with the magazine as a small independent magazine mm -hmm. that was funded by a, a large scale fashion house to break even in three and a half years. At the end of 06, 07, I go to, Mark, Mark, uh, to Seth, who was running the business side of it. And I go, look, uh, I got good news and bad news. The good news is we broke even and we're going to start making profits. The bad news is I'm not going to start paying you back. And he goes, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, look, we can't walk into McDonald's, AT&T, Procter & Gamble anymore and say, buy this 350,000 Cirque magazine and get as much money out of this as we really need. We need to expand this scope and we need to go into digital. And I don't know if you remember 06, but digital was either massive portals, AOL and Yahoo, or mm -hmm. verticalized, like very, very niche sites that were either in ubiquitous ad networks or just independently represented. My viewpoint was, the, the, there's, a, there's a happy medium there is if you organize a whole bunch of verticalized topics, you will have the scale for the advertising side, but they can remain independent to the audience side. This way, you're not reinventing the wheel. You're just kind of fishing where the fish are. So uh, from a business perspective. So we, we, instead of going and spending all this money on just complex.com and creating another hub, we were like, Let's create a verticalized ad network of best-in-class sneaker sites, best-in-class music sites, best-in-class art, design, and shopping. And we launched the vertical ad network of complex networks at that time. By the way, all of this thought process is exactly the same. The words might have, we might have honed them here and there, and, and, the, and basically the outside world understands it to be true now, yeah. but nobody was running that business model when we came up with it. No, and I, and I can vouch for that, actually, Rich, having followed the sort of transformations that Complex has made over the years. So I launched a music website called gigwise.com in 2002 as well. So oh, wow. we, kind of, we kind of went along a similar journey. And through some of that, I would always sort of keep an eye on what Complex was doing. So one of the things I know you've talked about quite a lot before was your battle with YouTube, for instance, and trying to keep revenues within 
your own sales network rather than being, like you say, farmed out and just being some part of an ad network and everybody controlling your revenue. And we were keen to do the same sort of thing as well. So definitely got full understanding of that. So just to sort of wind it back a bit, around 2007, 2008, then you're already producing about a quarter of the revenues that the magazine was producing. Is that right? And then you've grown out. At that time, time, the magazine versus digital was probably about 65, 35 print to digital. The digital had really gone like this. Unfortunately, at, at right around 07, 08, Echo's business, uh, the, the Rhino, the fashion side of it, mm-hmm. streetwear was taking a down hit. They had gone into brick and mortar retail. That was taking a down hit. And then 2008 happened. Yeah. So our business is going like this. Theirs is going like that. I saw it as an opportunity to fund our business, allow them to get some cash. And we went out and raised capital from Excel Partners and Austin Ventures. Right. Very little. It was about $7 million worth of capital. It was, it was basically working capital with a little, bit of, um, a little bit of investment, right? And when we, when that allowed us to break free and not have to be um, a smaller subsidiary of Echo, but an independent publisher in a true sense, and allowed us to be much more aggressive in the marketplace. And that set us up to really kind of get through the very challenging time of eight, nine, and 10. Okay. Um, so we're, we're going to go into a bit of that in a bit more detail later on. But so basically at this point, you raised some capital and you used that to buy out Mark's business that was the majority no, we, bought out, we bought out all of Seth at that time and okay. um, a little bit of uh, the money we owed to Echo, in, uh, to Echo the, the entity in general. Mark stayed on with me as we went forward as a kind of, he went from an investor to a board member. So he stayed on with me in that respect. And then Excel and AV took spots as our venture backers going forward. Right. Okay, cool. So just at that point then, I mean, you obviously had a lot of vision for where you were going early on. What were you thinking at that point? Were you thinking we're going to shoot for this stars we're going to become a, a unicorn what, what well, was you know we got we kind of got a little lucky there which everybody has to is organizing all of these best in class vertical voices the one thing i didn't see coming was social networks and what social networks did is really democratize so instead of those large scale uh, portals that was the what people didn't understand is those social networks were the beginning of the end of the portals right you no longer needed to be everything to everybody. You wanted a best-in-class version. And the social networks allowed those people to reach every one of their verticalized communities. You didn't need the scale of a large-scale platform. Those were usurped by the social networks. And they disproportionately opened the door for sites like Nice Kicks and Soul Collector and you know Complex, really, and um, Nah Right from the music perspective. So what we organ, what our discipline in, in going after the best voices previously and organizing our ad network, what we didn't see was they were going to have a massive influx of scale added to them because of the social networks. And then that enabled us to go, wait a second, if we have this much power in the marketplace, impact and influence with youth culture, now because of the scale of the entirety, all the boats rising together, and we basically had all of the most meaningful sites in the world from a youth culture perspective at that point. Mm-hmm. I was like, how do we do it? So how do we remain relevant? So our big push at the end of 11 into 12 was let's go hard into video. But 
into video when we said that it wasn't about short form kind of trick content that was more of the version of clickbait. We never did clickbait from a, from a text perspective. What is that longer form storytelling and narrative? And we went aggressively into that, into the end of 11 and beginning of 12. Yeah. So the transformation of your content from print to digital and now to video, where I guess that's where most of your content is being consumed. And then you've gone into conferences and now you're in virtual reality. Take me through some of the, the thought process of that. Is that entirely backed by what's happening outside of, of your own content creation, like you're saying with the social media networks? Or did no, you always envision getting into video? It's it's look, it's a it's a look, part of that is as you expand a business, right? And this is back in the day when I watched Proctor do this, they would decide okay, if we're going to enter this category, is it a brand iteration of this current brand or do we find a new brand that is more verticalized? That's the way I think about our formats and mediums that we move into. Is Mm -hmm. it, do we just extend complex or do we go to a more verticalized expertise within that, right? Like for us, it's, it's very difficult to participate in a category like food if we did it with the complex umbrella. One of the reasons we launched First We Feast was because we know we needed a food culture brand that could live on its own with food at the at the epicenter of it, not music and hip hop, right? Those those are still tenants of it, but they are secondary. So when we think about moving into formats, it was how how can we do it in the most differentiated way where we're adding the most value to the consumer, which would then enable us to add the most value back to brands and advertisers. That's the, our thought process. Mm-hmm. Most people. It's, the exact opposite. It's how do we get to as much scale as possible so I can get as much revenue from brands and advertising? If you start with that on a reverse engineer basis, you are assured of putting a bad product out there and pissing off your community and then, and then shortening the, the, the impact of your business, right? And the effectiveness of it. Mm-hmm. We just look at it very differently than other people. So part of it is macro. Part of it is also... <clears throat> We're not a brand that ages up. Like we don't have our core consumer from an interest perspective and then age up with them. Like a lot of them stay with us. But what we've done is become the defining platform of all of the vertical topics that are most important to youth culture. So we have new audience coming in. That new audience coming in every year is coming in through different platforms, different mediums that are looking at different formats. So you, if you're not cognizant of that, you can't continue to be relevant to the new audiences that are coming in every year into the topics. Mm. So it's a little bit of outside, it's a little bit of inside, but it's more understanding the way to speak to the most important people within each category that you're trying to talk to. So I think that's one of the really great things about Complex. Like you say, you kind of diversified into, into different brands. And you seemed really, really great. Uh, and I've seen so many other companies and advertising agencies that sort of are, are sort of dual publishers as well, create these new brands in a very similar way that you've done it previously. And that seemed to be a real skill set. So you're creating brand new destinations on the web in, in slightly different verticals, but the same community. And then you're also building up this network for the eyeballs and the reach and all the other stuff that you've got. So, I mean, this is important because the next question is, is about your first acquisition because this show is about M&A and, and making acquisitions or, or merging with other companies. What were you thinking when you thought, I'm going I'm to acquire? So your first business that you acquired, I think, was Pigeons and Planes. 
which was a, a blog, a music blog. Why did you go from putting, you know, these other destinations that were called into your network and, and being so good at creating your own to actually spending money on somebody well, else's business? We looked at, we looked at, it's not just looking at music and then going, how do we add more scale to music? That's not the way. It's, again, if you put the audience first, the one thing, we were better at reviewing music or doing deep dives on talent from a content and storytelling basis than anybody else. But the one thing that was missing was new music discovery. So when we evaluated music, all the layers of music and all the entry points from the community, what was missing? What was missing was music discovery. And what Jacob was doing at Pigeons and Planes, basically he was, he was running an AR and A&R business at, as a music blog. And it was across all types of, of, of music and content. And what he was just doing was finding people way earlier with a much more discerning tongue than everybody else. And it was a great opportunity to bring in and enhance the entire music offering of Complex and everybody in our network as well. So it just made a lot of sense. We just look at it... <clears throat> You know, you know, the argument of like, people always go, well, what's the argument of buy versus build? Well, okay. Did we have the new music discovery talent in-house at that time? If we did, we probably would have backed that person and launched our own entity. But because we didn't, and we were intellectually honest enough to realize that there was already a best-in-class, very fairly priced asset out there, that was a great tuck-in for us that would fit very, very well. But it's being honest about what you're good at, what you're not, and if you can develop it or not, and what the value exchange is. Can you take us through that deal then? Because you just said it was fairly priced. So how did you go about making that acquisition and well, how mean, did you price it up? That you're going <laughs> to laugh. And there's, there's really, um, there's a lesson here, but it's not a lesson that most people would think about. Look, Jacob and Pigeons and Planes was not represented by a banker. No one shopped it to us. My uh, editor-in-chief Noah Can uh, no at that time, Noah Callahan-Bever, was like, dude, you got to look at this site. This is amazing. This kid Jacob is so talented. He was running this blog while he was going to Hofstra. So he was doing it at night on the side while he was uh, a student. And we went to him and said, listen, basically, we did a combination of an aqua hire. Nobody had offered to buy this site. We just reached out to him and said, we're going to buy the site and we're going to give you a job and you're going to get to run it and we're going to put money into it. And that was us being very early, being very honest and aggressive and looking at, looking at making a deal where there wasn't really a deal to be had, but realizing that there was a deal to be had. Right. And that, I think, is the real takeaway is a lot of people, you know, I, I understand how busy everybody is and I understand corp dev departments and everything like that. But if you're only uh, looking at what your friend uh, or your banker is bringing to you, you are the aperture of your viewpoint is nowhere near as open as it needs to be. And if you're in charge of a corp dev department, you damn well better be looking at the widest aperture possible and then be as creative within that scope of the deal making itself on a tactical basis as well. And that's where I don't see enough aggressive nature of corp dev people. I would agree with that, actually, yeah. That, that's what we find in our in our day-to-day. -day. So the, the good thing about the way that we work with our clients is we bring in deals of all sizes. So if we find something tiny or really interesting, we will still bring it to the table because of the way our deals are structured. So 
kind of you did the same thing. Somebody brought this to you from the periphery and you looked at it and said, well, this is amazing. So usually when you find these small businesses, they're not they're kind of not worth anything in the in the traditional sense, in that they're not massively profitable. You can't you times the EBITDA by three to five. You can't get there with a valuation that makes any sense with a banker. So how did you come up with a, a formula that worked with you and Jacob so that, that he was happy to come in? I mean, look, he was you know, he was coming out of school. He had no job. And I think he wanted to do something that was his passion. We knew we had an advantage that it was, or we knew that you started something with nothing. You want to do this rather than get a real job, quote unquote, right? Um, to me, that was the big thing. So it was, it was, it was kind of like the funkiest aqua hire ever. I mean, to, to answer your question better, we should probably jump to Soul Collector as an acquisition, right? It was, Here's the perfect way to think about it is Soul Collector was the bit was one of the bigger sneaker sites and it was one of the only ones that wasn't part of our network at the time. And my viewpoint was I wanted to close out the category. And I had met Steve and I'm like, listen, you are have done a great job taking this site. And it was pretty obvious they were at their ceiling. They weren't growing um, audience anymore. It was very limited in their revenues. They were working really hard. But there wasn't a cohesive real plan for acceleration. And great namesake, unbelievable global presence. Um, but they didn't, they weren't ringing the towel up. They couldn't get as much out of it. I'm like, we have this crazy shared services. You want to go sailing. This is a great opportunity. Um, that was a different one too, where we went, no, no banker involved. We just literally cut a deal with the owner on a direct basis. That would give, you know, the one thing about our sector that's very important is a great deal of the people we deal with when we're buying the sites or buying the brands or buying the opportunities is a great deal of these people. This is their baby and they want to see it live on. They don't want to see it gobbled up in some tuck into it. They want to see it invested in. They want to see it. Um, they want to see it get grow to the place where it can be and optimize. And they want people who respect what they've done and their voice and their tone. And you can't fake that, right? Like a banker's never going to explain that on either way. So our reputation in the marketplace of taking an asset and effectively bringing them on and their brand on, optimizing each one of those things, it's just a very good track record, which then begets a better deal-making structure and start of that, that conversation. When you know, when you're the worse your reputation, the bigger the check you have to write to get a deal done, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and we never make it about the money as the as the tip of the spear. There's a lot of components, and if anybody wants to make it about the money only, we probably won't get a deal done. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I think the important thing about that is it is the human element, really. I mean, there is some psychology involved, obviously, because it's business. But beyond that, it's a person with a baby, and you're trying to buy it off them, and you have to go very gently and also offer them something very generous. Otherwise, what's the point? Obviously, we can't get into deal by deal structures because they're they're in the past, and I'm sure nobody wants to talk about what what they gave up. <laughs> Um, but if you were to put a deal, a similar deal together and advise, you know, people that are listening to this, how to put that type of deal together, how do you put a value on a business and how, how do you, you know, make the offer and, and make the approach? That's you know, just 
the one thing where I will go towards like, and whether a banker is involved or not, what I find is don't insult the owner of the business. If a banker is not involved, you have the opportunity and the moral responsibility to actually do the right thing by them. So like, look, with Steve, uh, when, with Soul Collector, I went to Steve and I'm like, look, here's all of the sneaker sites that are in the network. Here's how much revenue they're doing. Here's how much EBITDA they're doing. Here's what comps are out there in the marketplace of other sectors. And I'm like, all that stuff that he didn't know how to do, wouldn't do, because I wanted to show him in an honest way, in a transparent way, that this was a very fair offer from us. Mm -hmm. And then what the ceiling and the floor would be. So, you know, when you have an opportunity to come forward on an honest basis and have an honest negotiation, which, by the way, is almost an oxymoron at this point in this world, I believe that that's how you get a good, de- a good fair deal done for everybody. You don't try and hide anything. You be proactive in sharing where you stand and how you stand. It's not about winning. The winning should be all the work that you've done to create that this is the right partnership. The winning should come afterwards, not winning within a deal that you got a, you know, you saved an extra dollar or didn't give an extra dollar to the other person. Hopefully that's de minimis because if you've made the right deal, everyone's going to win from a money perspective. And so when you had that honest conversation, how did that go down in the physical world? Did you both sit at a table in a room and I did. And I walked him through it and I said, listen, ask any questions. I'll explain it to you if you want. And then this way you are also armed if and when you go talk to a lawyer or another banker, you they can validate that I'm being honest with you. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, I I would advise anybody to try that that approach to get somebody to sit down once you've got the deal on the table to just discuss it face to face and and deal with anybody's questions there. So can you take us through the Verizon Hearst deal? Because I'm not sure I've, uh, I've ever seen a deal like this with a digital or anything else, really, where you have two such different partners come into a JV and then acquire a content empire like Complex. How did it come about? What was the structure of that deal? Because, I mean, it's kind of, there's so many players involved. It's, it's a bit confusing to just look at that and understand well, it, was, it. It, was, it was a wild time. There were a lot of things going on on the backdrop, right? So Hearst, had been looking at us for a long period of time. And um, in September of 2015, they put $21 million into us on an investment perspective. Right at, like, honestly, before the ink was even dry on that, um, they had started having conversations. And I don't want to represent 100%. I'm going to just talk about it topically. Mm -hmm. But they had started having conversations with Verizon, who was entering the media space with, and if you remember this, and I'm holding up my phone, because it was go 90 degrees, right? So you're turning the phone and you were going to watch video. So they were getting into the media space. They found a great partner from a vision perspective of Hearst, like a great brand company who would understand how to help them enter into this. Mm-hmm. Hearst was like, look, we just put a whole bunch of money into you. We should have a discussion with Verizon about, on a commercial basis, about Go90 and other things like that. As we started having a conversation with them about the commercial relationship and how much content we could provide, they started realizing how different we were about not just the content we developed, but the communities that we developed, the quality of the video, and our unparalleled success 
and very differentiated audience from a youth culture perspective. They had just um, bought uh, Awesomeness as a JV right bef- uh, through, through that JV of Hearst and Verizon right before us. And we had that conversation. It came together very quickly. And for me, it, it was a great win because we were able to exit very successfully for the, the, um, our early stage venture partners, mm-hmm. the management team, as well as now get additional capital from an investment perspective from Go90 that would accelerate our vision into premium video. So it kind of checked every single box. And the beautiful part about going into a JV, which really worked to our advantage as well, is we were not, because it was a 50-50 JV, we continued to operate as an independent player. We never integrated into Hearst or integrated into Verizon. So that allowed us to run our playbook with the power and leverage of those two brands as well. Yeah, so Hearst had Hearst Digital, at least they did in the UK. I think they made a they oh, made no, no. They had a very, very large, very, very large business. Their magazines and their digital business mm. is very significant. Yeah. Uh, but you know, to say that we had a different audience and a different approach was the understatement. So they respected very much our vision as well as our level of execution and allowed us to remain an independent asset, which was the greatest thing in the world. And then as, you know, Go90 failed and Verizon uh, exited the media business and and some things didn't work out, it created an opportunity for me to go have different conversations, which led to the BuzzFeed play. Yeah, we'll go on to BuzzFeed in a minute. But yeah, again, just an amazing deal to get done obviously cemented your independentness of the complex network as well. And was there, I mean, because it's just, it still does baffle me a little bit. Was there a, a layer of management above you in Verizon Hearst? Was there an entity that sat above no, you at all? No, look, we just swapped out our board from venture guys to owners, right? right? We just changed the structure of that. You know, you don't know me very well, but I'll, I'm sh- sure you know me well enough to know that, um, like I run the business. Let's just <laughs> say it that way. It's my vision and we're going to be very aggressive in that vision. And we are going to be incredibly effective from an executional perspective as well. So when you do that, you know, what people, what people don't realize, they all bitch about, you know, whether it's a boss or a board or a owner. And it's like, well, it's up to you. The more, the better you execute and the more vision you show and then back that up, the more people leave you alone and let you do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. So it's up to you. The responsibility is not on somebody else to make your life easier. Um, you're, it's your responsibility to step up as the CEO and leader of the company to have a very ambitious vision with a very pragmatic level of massive execution that goes with it. And believe me, when you do that, People let you do your job. Brilliant. I think we could take some of those as quotes and put them up on social media. They're, they're pretty strong. Oh, I, do it off, I do it often, my friend. I know. I follow you on LinkedIn. You, you've definitely got loads, loads, loads of stuff, quotable stuff coming out. Okay, so, I mean, there's, a, there's loads of stuff in there. But just very quickly, how did you go about raising that money? Because I think a lot of founders get stuck at, at the, the money part. 
did you put a, a deck together and go out and, and, and pitch to a bunch of VCs or did we do it the Rich Antonelli way? Well, uh, well basically, I, like you're going to laugh, but you know, there wasn't a whole lot of Googling you could do in 07, 08, and 09 around how to raise capital uh, and, and what is venture and other things like that. There wasn't yeah. a whole lot. It was a very small place. There wasn't a whole lot of information. Um, and me, like an idiot, decided to just go. My ignorance worked to our advantage. Let's put it that way. Um, I went out there and started having conversations with people and not in a very formal way. We didn't run a process, didn't have banker representing us, but we had a very unique narrative, right? We had a very unique narrative, well beyond an MVP. We had real traction and real. So we had what the narrative was. We had proof points that really pointed to everything being not just different than everybody else, but very, very both volatile potential like of like taking off as well as very potentially profitable. And it was a differentiated story that was brand first, that was centered in a, in a formally very successful different medium that was profitable beforehand. So this iteration was, I think, a little bit more well-received. My business acumen was more macro rather than as a venture startup deck. We just pitched a real business vision and a very effective, disciplined, executional team. Um, and a lot of people saw that as a great offering. Little did I know how um, unlikely it was that we were able to be successful, not just raising capital in a very down market, but I mean, raising capital from two AAA firms, Excel and Austin Ventures, with no understanding of what the hell I was talking about, um, worked out rather nicely. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, we'll talk about this this final deal as well. That's a, that's obviously the big one. But obviously, you're saying that you came to quite quite naive with no experience. But did you manage to keep hold of some shares for yourself? How, how was the deal? Oh no, this is that a you were able to win. I, I have um, not just for myself, but you know, when people ask about. The first exit, right? Well, and by the way, it's beautiful that we get to exit twice with the same asset. Very mm. few people ever so get to many exits, yeah. Especially very big strategic ones that are not out of duress. None of these are saves in a butte. These are massive elevations both times. But the first time, and this is very near and dear to me, somebody growing up where I grew up and how I grew up, you know, we exited and we made over 17 people millionaires as our, as our staff. So we had a lot of people that did very, very well. The people that were with me for 7, 10, 12 years going into that at, from an exit perspective. And for me to be able to reward them for believing in my vision and backing me all those years through some very dark, tough, challenging times is the most rewarding thing. Here is above and beyond my own completely life-changing monetary situation. That to me was the more important one. Mm -hmm. So are these guys still involved in the business? Now you're on your, your a great, final- a great, deal of, a great deal of them are. We, um, so my CTO is still with me coming up on 17 years. Uh, my CRO has been with me for 11 years. My, um, 
who else? I mean, we have quite a list of people that are still with us through all of these different iterations, all of these different ownership structures. That level of continuity is something that not only I can't, I can't ever t- say how much I appreciate these people, but I think it's a big reason why we've been able to successfully iterate this company. Not just me, but have a team that's been there, done that, knows how to do it, believes in that, and can convey that to their teams with a level of confidence that is unparalleled is why you can continue to iterate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic story. And uh, it's not over yet. So let's come right up to today. <laughs> In June, BuzzFeed announced that it was buying Complex, which were, I've got to admit, it was a massive surprise to me. It seemed like a, a really unlikely match. But they are acquiring you as part of a deal to get them listed uh, via a SPAC. So what can you tell us about the structure of that deal? Well, let, let me tell you about the strategy. I can't honestly speak to the structure for a lot of reasons. You know, we haven't, we're waiting for SEC approval and all of those things to occur. So I'm, I'm very limited in what I could say about that. But let me say this. It actually shouldn't come as much to as much of a surprise. And let me walk you through why. Yeah, please do. Um, so... BuzzFeed and Tasty are over, and HuffPo are over here. Very like millennial and Gen Z audiences, but in a very different way. They're very audience-focused, very scale-focused. Even their, the way they make their money is all, like um, um, very uh, much more automated in a lot of ways. We attack the same large-scale demo, but completely different topics. And we're very brand-focused. We're very storytelling, longer form. Um, and even within each line item, but we've, we're both probably the two most successful companies from diversifying their revenue streams. BuzzFeed has a massive e-commerce business. They have a, a, a very large uh, long-form IP business. Like they have a deal with Lionsgate to do five movies. You know, we, are, uh, we have a massive events and e-commerce business. Um, so even when we come at each of these topics, we come at them very differentiated. You know, a lot of their, their business on the e-com side is an automated play of, you know, um, lead gen and other things like that. We're like, here, here's hot ones and you can buy hot sauce or here's complex con and you could buy, here's a whole bunch of hoodies and sweatshirts and hats from the best up-and-coming artists that are super premium on a brand side of things. So the complementary nature is, well, wait a second. If we could take even 30% of their best practices and apply that to our brand side, and they can take 30% of our brand side and apply it to their audience base, what can we do together? If Think of it as a hold co, right? Mm-hmm. That now will have best-in-class shared services in the most premium brand way, all the way to the most premium audience development on that side of things as well. So that to me is the future of media, not trying to force one large entity, but a hold co play where each vertical property can win on the content side of things and have the best in class shared services to tap into with the right ratios for their business. So is the idea to keep these two brands completely apart going forward? From an editorial perspective, yes, every single every single brand within the portfolio, because they have every single one of those brands is run as an independent 
player from an from a content development perspective and all the content, but then there's shared services in sales, audience development, social, long form IP development, events, and what and what is the application to each of those within each one, and that's the way it's going to be run overall. Right. So. Uh, and by the way, I just want to say this: like Jonah, Jonah is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. So now you've got all of these brands in in one sort of holding co. Are there any more plans for acquisitions? Are you are you together? You and Jonas looking to go out and find even more businesses to plug into the Buzzflex monster? Uh, that could be the understatement of the year. Right. Wow. Okay. So we're going to stay tuned for some more exciting developments coming from you guys. And what's the future? Uh, I mean, Jonah is obviously a great leader himself of his business, but what's the future of, of you within this new entity? Are you going to be the CEO until right till the end when everybody's burning down in a nuclear apocalypse? There's still I guess you missed that part. We are, um, we are uh, I'm exiting from an operational perspective. Wow. Okay. Um, so I'm going to, I have uh, a long-term consulting gig to work with, continue to work with Jonah and Christian who will be elevated. And I'm going to be very involved on the strategic side of things, both on the corp dev, as well as la- large scale partnerships. And uh, gives me the opportunity to continue to be very involved with the entire portfolio as well as do some other things in other fields that I'm very interested in right now, okay. such as blockchain, NFTs, long form, you know, the world, what people don't understand what's going on with DAOs, NFTs, and crypto is the complete redefinition of the IP world. So we're very excited about where everything is going. Wow. That also sounds, the delivery was a little bit cryptic as well. So you're keeping us interested for the long term to see where you go. I can't really see you retiring, shyly off. Well, I'm not, I'm not retiring. Just, yeah, I'm <laughs> not going anywhere. It's, uh, I'm just changing the, the allocation of time and opening the aperture of what my interests are and where I can impact. That's all. Great. I mean, it sounds really, really exciting. So yeah, everybody keep their eyes peeled to see what happens next. So finally, before we close, what advice would you give to anyone who's listening to this podcast? So these guys are mostly agency and media people. And personally, I talk a lot about sort of this 360 agency media products approach that Complex have done. And you talked about BuzzFeed doing it as well. And you guys have really smashed it. Is there anything that you can say to these guys about how to get from a smaller agency or a little digital publisher to building an empire within their verticals? Yeah, you know, it's going to sound weird. But it's a little bit of it's it's a little bit of overall business acumen, but combined with more of a personal approach. The thing that I have seen is to we we addressed lightly before reverse engineering businesses. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are like, okay, well, this is what worked for somebody else. I'm just going to replicate that for me. And this kind of checking a box, like not every brand is going to fit into the metaverse. Don't just have that. Like, here's our metaverse box that I now check. Here's our crypto box that I now check. Is, can you, does your brand and audience play in a space? How do you do it in a differentiated way? 
And how do you do it on a true value exchange to the end of the audience? For me, I'm always blown away when people, people learn just enough about something to participate in it. As a leader, you're supposed to become an expert in something. So you understand how to enter it in a differentiated way and create a moat that is defensible and creates long-term enterprise value. And I find today too many people are dipping toes in pools rather than jumping in, learning, understanding, and being strategic. You know, just participating is not enough. And honestly, very often you lose focus, you dilute your offering, you actually, you piss your audience off. For me, it's do less way better and learn ahead of time, be strategic, and you don't let the marketplace dictate what you do and how you enter and when you enter. You let your quality of idea, thought process, level of execution, and that's when, you notice, we're, we're early. I have a philosophy. You'd rather be early and better than first or best. A combination of early and better is the best in the world right now on this very fast-moving world. Like every sector is so fast, right? Mm -hmm. And it's changing. So when something changes so fast, that means your window to exploit it is very small. That means being best, you're never going to get an opportunity to potentially maximize all of that value. But being first means that you might not have a very good margin on your product or other things like that. My viewpoint is be very early and be way better than other people. And that's the better opt that it allows you to optimize in these smaller windows and iterate more quickly. Instead of trying to be perfect, you're, you're better. And instead of trying to be first, you're early, but differentiated strategically. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just an amazing business advice that goes right across the board for everything. Okay. So tell us how we can stay in touch with with you, where can we follow you? You're doing stuff like all of these new changes that are coming up. Where can we find out about what you're doing? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the two best places and the two best ways to get me are follow, like connect with me on LinkedIn, just Richard Antonello. And um, also on Twitter, at Rich Antonello. And just follow me there. And if you have something very interesting to say, we'll connect and you can DM me. Those are probably the two best platforms. It's where I say the most and I'm the most active. That's, that's, my, that's my bag. All right, brilliant. Thank you so much, Rich, for, for being a guest. It's been an absolutely fantastic chat. And actually, we could probably keep going for hours and hours, but I think I've already gone over the limit. We, we, we've doubled our time, but that's we okay. Have. We have, and I'm truly, truly grateful. It's been absolutely brilliant. I've really enjoyed it, and I hope the listeners have too. So thank you very much. And uh, if you're listening to this, make sure you do subscribe, and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.